Well, please do turn your Bibles back to Romans 12 and have it open. Let me ask you this morning, when you think of threats to Christianity in Scotland, what do you think of? The recent referendum results in Ireland has seen plenty of mockery of Christian beliefs on TV and on radio. I know that some Christians have felt threatened by this. They see it as part of a hostile culture, a culture which is very anti-Christian in many ways. And we can also feel under pressure at work or at school, perhaps because of jokes or because of bullying People who treat us badly just because we're Christians. We see some of the things which are happening in terms of legislation. And we think, how can Christianity be successful here? Everything seems to be against us. But the Bible never says that Christianity is under threat just because it is opposed or even because it is persecuted On the night of his arrest, Jesus warned his disciples that if the world persecuted him, it would persecute them as well. In fact, our passage this morning, it assumes that we're going to face evil. It assumes we're going to face affliction in this life. And the real threat is that in the face of hardship or persecution, we will be tempted to pay back evil for evil. We will be tempted to become unloving. Just remember what has gone on before in the book of Romans. We've been told again and again about God's mercy towards us. And then in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul reminds us, maybe it's just worth having a look at, that in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Then he goes on to say that we're not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And what that means is that this morning, we are called to love deeply and radically even in an unloving world. Love in the Bible is not simply a a warm or a fuzzy feeling. It's not the contents of a Hallmark greeting card with uh, bad poetry. Instead, just look at verse 9. It says that love must be sincere. It's not just politeness or niceness. I used to work at a call center. We were well-trained in how to be nice and polite. Yes, sir. No, madam. Of course I want to help you with that. But I can't say that we were always very loving. (laughs) Once I received a call from a woman, and I had to apologize that her broadband router hadn't been delivered yet. I checked, and I said, I'm very sorry. It's at the delivery depot. I'm sure it will be with you tomorrow. Well, a couple of hours later, she called me up. And she said, I'm in my car outside the delivery depot. How do I get in to get my router? 
It's freezing cold. I can't believe I'm having to be out here. Of course, I apologize. She said, my kids are in the back. I couldn't leave them at home. We've driven two hours to get here. They're cold as well. And of course, all my customer service training came in and I apologized profusely. And I said how sorry I was and how I'm sure that if she returned home, it would just be with her tomorrow. I said all that nice stuff with my mouth. And in my head, I was thinking, you're mental. I want to get away from you as quickly as possible. I don't want anything to do with you. I was well trained, so I was polite and courteous. But oh boy, was I insincere. <laughs> that is not what love is. Look again at verse 9. Real love, it hates what is evil. It clings to what is good. You know, it detests evil. It wants nothing to do with it, but it sticks like glue to what is good. And we're given two areas this morning to where we're going to apply this love, where we're going to show it. And first of all, verses 10 to 16, we're told to love the family of God. And then in verses 17 to 21, we're told to love those who are our enemies. But just notice for a second, verse 14. It's right in the middle of Paul describing how we're to treat our fellow Christians. Suddenly he tells us to bless our persecutors. Paul is purposefully mixing up those two groups. He's saying that you can't draw too strong a distinction between them. Possibly because sometimes we do get hardships from other people in the church, unfortunately. But I think much more so because it's the same love that we're to have for those outside the church as we're to have for each other in the church. We might apply it in a different way. The circumstances are different, but it's the same well of love that we're to have in and out. So first of all, let's have a look at that love for the family of God. We're told to be devoted to each other with a brotherly love. We're each to treat other people in this church as a family. Back in Romans 8, if you remember back that far, it says that Christians have been given the spirit of adoption. We now call God our father, Abba. So whatever our background might be, whether you're English or Scottish, whether you're rich or poor, in Romans' case, whether you were Jew or Gentile, you are now part of the same family. And there is no sibling rivalry. There's no trying to outdo each other for our parents' affections. But there is one way we're to outdo each other, and that's in how well we treat one another. That's what it means in the second half of the verse to honor each other above ourselves. We see each other as more important or even more significant than we do ourselves. It's a humble love. We have to work hard in this kind of love. It says we have to be zealous. We can't be lacking in spiritual fervor. This is a passionate, a burning love. I think sometimes we have this idea that Passionate love is for romantic affairs. No, we'd have this passionate love 
for each other. We must not let it grow cold within us. Even under all the pressures we face, we must keep this love on fire. How do we do this, though? With all the things which are around us. Well, verse 12, I think, tells us how. We have to remember the gospel. We have to have joy in the hope given to us in Christ, that we are now his people, and there is nothing on heaven or earth that can separate us from the love of our God. Because we know what God has already done for us, we can be patient in our affliction. We can persevere even when it seems that times are very dark. And we will be a people who will continue to pray. We will be faithful in prayer in order to sustain that joy and that patience, to keep that relationship with God. The love that we're called to do is not a selfish love. It's not even a self-satisfied or a complacent love. It'll be something that we work at, something that we grow in together as a family. We're not called to keep the blessings of God for ourselves as individuals. You know, we're not to be like a dam on a river where everything flows into me and then it just stops there. We're to be an outlet. What we receive, we pour out into others. It has to be a zealous love. But this zealous love is then shown in practical ways. Verse 13 says to share with those in need, to practice hospitality. In fact, we're told in this passage to so identify with each other that in verse 15 it says rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. We're not cruel to each other. Your pains are my pains, but neither are we jealous. My successes are your successes. Sometimes this attitude can be shown in the smallest of actions. There was a young man who knew that he was called by God to a life of singleness just because of the way he was wired. And he lived by himself, and he had no physical contact with anybody. And he really yearned for a physical sign of love. And he really struggled in his singleness. Well, an old lady in his church noticed how sad he was. And so what she did on a Sunday when he came in, greet him. And she gave him a hug. That was it. Just a hug. But that sign of physical affection made all the difference to him. It reassured him that he was part of the family, that he was loved. It gave him that touch which he didn't have in any other part of his life. See, when we get this right... We're told that we will live in harmony with each other. We won't be haughty. We won't be proud. Instead, Paul says that we'll be willing to associate 
with people in low positions. The Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer used to say that there are no little people to God. There is nobody who is unimportant in the church in God's eyes. I think it's worth just thinking about this for a moment. If someone is a Christian, then it means that Jesus has already loved them. It means that Jesus has died for them and paid for their sins on the cross with his own blood. They are known by him. They are chosen by him. They are adopted by God. So then who are we to say to Jesus, sorry, Lord, you got this wrong. You know, that person is not quite up to my standards. Couldn't I have a better class of Christian to be in a church with, to associate with? Isn't that an awful thing to say out loud? But isn't that sometimes how we can act towards each other? The church is not an episode of keeping up appearances. We are not to be Mrs. Bouquet. So I challenge you this morning, after the service, when you go for your teas and coffees, will you speak just to your own small group of friends that you always speak to? Or will you look out for people who are by themselves? And it is perfectly okay, even if you've been here for months, years, to say to somebody, I'm really sorry, but I've forgotten your name. Could you remind me? Having a sermon on love this morning, they have to love you in return. <laughs> but just do that. Just go to somebody and reintroduce yourself and look for those who are by themselves this morning. Just let us be a community who really do love one another in the little things as well as the big things. Well, of course, it doesn't stop there. In this passage, this love of ours is to extend, extend to those who are outside the church as well. In fact, it isn't just a few outside the church that we are to love. It's not those who make the grade or who are nice to us. It says to those who persecute us. We are to bless those who persecute us. And just in case we didn't quite get the message, Paul repeats again immediately, bless and do not curse, verse 14. This is what Jesus did when he was on the cross in the worst possible pain and suffering with people mocking him. Jesus prayed to God and said, Father, forgive them. He called for a blessing on the people who were murdering him. In the book of Acts, the first Christian martyr to die for the faith 
man called Stephen. And as he is being stoned to death, as they are throwing stones and half bricks at him until he dies, he cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. My friends, this is not optional. This is not weakness. This is Christ-likeness. This is what godly strength looks like in an evil world. And I think it's in this context that we can then reread verse 15 and say that we too rejoice with those in the world who rejoice, and we also mourn with those in the world who mourn. We don't rejoice in the downfall of others, even those who we consider to be horrendous sinners. Remember what God says to the prophet Ezekiel? He says this to him, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. That is our attitude as well. It has to be. We do not repay evil for evil. We are not people who fight fire with fire. Instead, we think carefully. How can we do what is right in front of everyone? And Paul is realistic about how hard this is. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We're to live peacefully with others as much as we can. If there is trouble with others, if there is trouble at work or in our families or in our schools, it is never us who start it. That doesn't mean that we're passive in the face of injustice. It doesn't mean that we can't pray for deliverance doesn't mean that we can't tell others that we are being treated unfairly. In fact, on the contrary, we're told in this very passage that vengeance belongs to the Lord, that he will repay on our behalf. But here's the key thing about this verse. Vengeance belongs to him and not to us. He is the one who decides how he will repay. You know, we naturally want to get revenge. Who hasn't thought after an argument, something along the lines of, oh, if only I'd had the perfect comeback, the perfect line that would have embarrassed that person and shamed them. You know, just, just the right words to shut them down. Oh, that would have been good. We want that instant revenge. But the problem is that our revenge isn't perfect. It's sinful. We never get it quite right. We're always hard on the people who annoy us, and we're always soft on the people who we have a soft spot for. So God says to us instead, no, wait on me, and I will do it. And I will do it in perfect justice. Don't 
do what the world does. In fact, do the opposite of what the world does. We love our enemies in practical ways. We care for them physically. When our enemy is hungry, we feed them. If they're thirsty, we give them something to drink. Why? Is it to make things worse for that person? I mean, that's how some people have interpreted verse 20. It says that when we do think these things, we heap burning hot coals on their head. And some people have taken that to mean that we do these things just to make the judgment worse for them when it comes. But it's actually much more likely that this is a picture which represents shame. Hot coals on the head is something uncomfortable to say the least. It's something that you want to be rid of. It's not something that you want to have lots of. And so the idea is that our enemies come against us in hate and we shame them by showing them love. Because here's the surprise in the very last verse, the real climax of this. Paul not only warns us not to be overcome with evil. You know, he doesn't just say, don't do evil in response to evil. Don't become evil because of the pressures of evil around us. There are plenty of verses that we know about which say to us to keep holy, to keep ourselves pure. But then this little thing at the end, he says, but overcome evil with good. How can evil be fought against? How can evil be overcome? By doing good. By loving our enemies, we will conquer evil. Does that seem incredible to you? Does that seem unusual? It shouldn't. This is the gospel that Paul has already preached throughout the book of Romans. Back in Romans 5, Paul says these words, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on to say, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. God loved his enemies so much, Jesus died for them. Their greatest need, their need of salvation, was given by him. If you're not a Christian this morning, then I have to confess that you are still God's enemy. You are rebelling against him. But he holds out the offer of reconciliation to you. He holds out the offer of peace between you and him. Nothing that you have done is too much for God to forgive you. Trust in Jesus and be saved. God loves his enemies that is why Jesus came into the world so that good 
would overcome evil and those who were once his enemies would be adopted as sons and daughters into his family. And if you are a Christian this morning, then we must live by this pattern and no other. We must live our lives God's way, not the world's way. Brothers and sisters, love sincerely. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is genuine love. Let us pray.